Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible with you, you can open to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, we'll look at the first 11 verses. Um, The text is also printed in the bulletin for you. Um, So, you just introduce the Advent series again. Uh, So, it's uh, it's Glory Descends, and we're going to look over the next four weeks um, at the way that glory descends in the person of Christ this Sunday, the way uh, glory descends in the teaching of Christ, glory descends in the work of Christ, and then glory descends in our response to Christ. And um, so I'm going to take the first two, and then Greg Joins will be back to take the, uh, the second two of those sermons. And the basic idea is that, uh, you know, when we're talking about glory descends, um, the, the basic idea there is that it, it's the surprising... Um, unexpected upside-down nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and it's everything that God says to us in his word about the gospel uh, when Christ comes to us and reveals who he really is and, uh, and the plan of salvation. All these things are surprising to us. They're upside-down to us because in this broken, um, uh, sinful world, we have kind of flipped reality up, up, upside-down already, right? We're the ones standing on our heads and, uh, and Christ comes into the world and flips things back upside, right upside, right? Um, however you say that. <laughs> upside up. Um, <clears throat> but it's a surprise to us. So um, I'm going to give just a little caveat. There's going to be some overlap. For example, you can't really distinguish uh, too sharply between the person of Christ and the work of Christ. And when you talk about any of these things, uh, you, you can't really talk about them without mentioning implications for our response to who Christ is, what he's said and done for us. So um, just so you know, there will be some overlap. <clears throat> but um, this morning, we're going to look at uh, glory descends in the person of Christ. It's the, the good news of who Jesus is. A lot of times we say um, who Jesus is and what he's done. So the person and the work. Of Christ, we're going to focus on who He is this morning, and how that um, might surprise you as the revelation of God Himself. So we'll look at um, Philippians two verses one through eleven. We're going to kind of particularly focus in on um, verses five through eight. So let's pray, and then we'll read the passage. Father, we ask for your help as we consider your word. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to um, break our hard hearts and to mend our broken hearts. Would you shower us with your grace so that we have understanding of your word and more than understanding, true acceptance of it and uh, transformation by it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're going to talk about the incarnation. It's God taking on, uh, God the Son taking on human flesh, becoming a human being. And so um, as we look at that, you see verses 6 to 8 kind of are the the key verses we're looking at. Um, Some of the most beautiful and poetic and deeply theological verses in the New Testament, maybe even the whole Bible, might seem a bit heady as we look at it, but it's not just abstract um, theological exercise that we're trying to do here, um, trying to put words to some divine mystery that really you shouldn't try to do. Um, Paul's exploration of the incarnation here is, is very relevant and very practical, and it has tremendous significance for who we are and how we live and to prove that to you, let's just talk briefly about the context here. Of course, uh, as with all of the New Testament letters, especially Paul's letters, um, Paul's letter to the Philippians is written for practical purposes in the real life of the church. Uh, he has already expressed his thankfulness for their faith, for their ministry, and he will go on to extol their sacrificial generosity. Uh, so the gospel was at work in that community. It was changing lives. It was changing the reality of their relationships. But in our passage, we see a hint of something that Paul thought is a bit concerning, probably something worth addressing. And it's put in uh, the positive terms of an encouraging admonition here. It says in verses 2 through 4, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So that is how, um, in case you didn't have the social skills, you you talk to someone that you like when you have to say, you're being selfish, stop it. Right? You're being selfish. Don't do that. Um, Apparently, the Philippians were struggling with um, one-upsmanship disunity that is based on uh, self-advancement or conceit, self-centeredness, self-seeking. So uh, clearly this letter has something to say to us, to me, to you, right? Unless you're advanced beyond all of that. Um, Paul prescribes true humility, putting the interests of others before our own that leads to unity, that leads to real love. Um, we're not talking about uniformity when we say unity, but we're talking about a true unity that exists, even though we might disagree about certain things. So there can be unity, true unity, even though some of us are Republicans and some of us are Democrats and some of us are independents or constitutionalists or whatever, right? Um, there can be true unity, even though we have differing political views. There can be true unity, even though some of us 
homeschool our children. Some of us think we should send them to private school. Some of us, public school. We can have true unity even though we disagree about how to raise and teach our children. We can have true unity even though some of us are Calvinists, some of us are Arminians, some of us are Presbyterians, some of us are Baptists, right? We can have true unity even though we disagree about somewhat important things theologically, right? Um, There can be true unity, true love and respect and fellowship and tolerance of one another, even in diversity, when we have true humility, gospel-driven humility, when we become more selfless, when we give up insisting on our own rights, when we put the interests and good of others before our own, when we stop trying to scramble and push past each other on the ladder, um, then we become more, more humble and therefore we find true unity. And the inspiration for that kind of humility that leads to unity, um, it comes from the very profound gospel truth of the incarnation. Profound, deep, mysterious gospel truth. So, verses 5 to 8. Have this mind, he's he's admonishing them to have this, this unity of mind, this humility of mind. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul commands the church to have a humble mind like Christ. And then he goes on to extol the humility, the condescension of Jesus Christ and gives us one of the deepest reflections on the true nature of God that we find in the entire Bible. Uh, Contrary to selfish ambition or conceit or self-seeking, Christ demonstrated humility of a magnitude that is unimaginable. Key to understanding the magnitude of his humility is understanding who he is. So we need to start with the Trinity. You need to back all the way up, right, to the beginning of everything. And it's the Trinity. Belief in the Trinity is one of the fundamental doctrines of Christianity. If you believe in the Trinity, probably a Christian. If you don't believe in the Trinity, you're probably not a Christian. Right? Uh, the church throughout history has made some massive efforts. They understand how important this is. Um, We've made massive efforts to understand and codify at some level what the scriptures teach about who God is, about the Trinity. And the great councils and creeds have concluded that God is indeed triune. So, uh, children, probably a lot of you will be able to answer this question. Are there more gods than one? No, there's only one God. Uh, Only one God. Children, in how many persons does this one God exist? Somebody say it. Some little child, okay. Adults, three persons, right? And who are the three persons of God? They're the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So every Christian will tell you that it's a great mystery, but we worship God, uh, and he is one God who in himself is three persons. Not three gods, one God. 
and not one person, three persons. So relationship is essential to the very being of God. Relationship is essential to the very being of God. Now the Bible teaches, and Paul teaches here, that before the incarnation, before the conception and the birth of Jesus, he pre-existed as the second person of the Trinity. He was God the Son. Uh, Paul says in, in verse 6 that he was in the form of God. He was before in the form of God. And this is not a way of saying that um, he appeared to be like God but wasn't. Right? That's not the way that the, the language is being used there. The Greek word for form here is morphe, which uh, <clears throat> means more than simply external appearances. Right? It, it does have the idea of external appearance, but it's an appearance that assumes the essence or the internal. Right? When the external properly reflects the internal, that's, uh, that's the word morphe. Just as something gives a certain impression, when it is something, morphe assumes that uh, the way that a thing appears is consistent with what it truly is. So when Paul says that Christ was in the form of God, he is saying that Christ was discernibly, truly God. So um, that's a very big deal, right? That's a very big deal. He pre-existed before the incarnation, before Jesus was conceived and born. He pre-existed from all eternity. He has been God, one of the persons of the Trinity. And I'm not even going to give you time to try to wrap your minds around that because it's impossible. Go ahead and try it on your own time at home. But here's why it matters. Um, from before the foundation of the earth, Christ enjoyed perfect communion in the Trinity. His Father cherished him, and he delighted in his Father. He enjoyed all the power and privilege of God himself. If you uh, turn to the front, inside front cover of your bulletin, you'll see a quote there by Donald McLeod. He's written a book called The Person of Christ, which... Uh, it's tremendous. Uh, highly recommend it. It's a little bit thick, but it's, um, it's a very good book. And he says this about Christ. He possessed all the majesty of deity, performed all its functions, and enjoyed all its prerogatives. He was adored by his father and worshipped by the angels. He was invulnerable to pain, frustration, and embarrassment. He existed in unclouded serenity. His supremacy was total, his satisfaction complete, his blessedness perfect. Such a condition was not something he had secured by effort. It was the way things were and had always been, and there was no reason why they should change. So God the Son, the second person of the eternal trinity, was under no compulsion to leave all the glories and splendors and comforts of heaven, he didn't have to. <clears throat> but he did. He became a human. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. It says in uh, verse 7 of our text that he took the form of a servant, literally took the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. And again, we have that word form, morphe, which 
indicates that he was discernibly, clearly human. And there you have the most incredible mystery in the universe. The Bible says that the heaven of heavens cannot contain God, but God the Son became an earthly creature. If we have uh, no good metaphor for this, some imagine it like as if uh, Albert Einstein became an ant. Some imagine it as if uh, an angel became a worm or the sun became a single atom. Uh, but these metaphors fail us miserably because you've always got some creature becoming another creature. And in the incarnation of the Son of God, you've got the eternal and infinite creator becoming, he's the fount of all existence, becoming a finite part of his creation, his finite creation. And he didn't even pick the best of his creation or else he would have become an angel, right? Uh, Closer to divine. But he was made for a little while lower than the angels. He chose to become a uh, second-tier creature, poor member of a broken and mortal race under the law, bound as a slave to obey God as a creature in the creature's role. There's no category for that. Charles Spurgeon, the other quote from the beginning of the bulletin there, says that, uh, now wonder, you angels, the infinite has become an infant. He upon whose shoulders the universe doth hang, hangs at his mother's breast. He who created all things and bears up the pillars of creation hath now become so weak that he must be carried by a woman. Incarnation, such an incredible mystery that uh, most other religions condemn it as blasphemy. We're on our own with this one. Even some Christians have tried to explain it away, saying that God couldn't have uh, truly become a man, but only appeared to be like a man, or that Jesus really was truly a man, but couldn't have been truly, fully God. But this passage clearly teaches that God the Son, who is completely unlike us in his divinity, became completely like us in his humanity, which, uh, while, of course, remaining fully God. And the point, uh, that point is debated by some because of this very passage, actually, in trying to understand verse 7 when Paul says Christ emptied himself. The word there, uh, the, the, the Greek word has to do with kenosis. Theologically, it's the question of kenosis, emptying himself, which comes from the verb there, which uh, some people argue that Christ emptied himself of his divinity. So he became less than fully divine when he became a human is wrong. Um, Or they argue that Christ emptied himself of divine attributes, like his omniscience or omnipresence or omnipotence, right? But while retaining his divine essence. It's a little hard for us to believe when he demonstrates in the Gospels that he knows what people are thinking or when he controls the weather, the wind and the waves obey him, or when he casts out demons or performs healings by his divine power. The text doesn't say that he emptied himself of anything. It just says that he emptied himself by becoming a slave. Donald McLeod again says, 
It was himself that he emptied. And the way that he emptied himself was by taking the form of a servant. He became a slave without rights, a non-person. So he poured himself out by becoming a human, not just any human, a slave. He emptied himself, gave himself up by taking the low place of service. He emptied himself by humbling himself. And here's the most amazing thing, that it is absolutely in God's very nature to do such a thing. It says, though he was in the form of God, verse 6, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't feel the desperate need to cling to his equality of status with God, which he had enjoyed from all eternity. But the, the translation is... Um, Maybe unfortunately, not the most helpful. You, you kind of get the sense from, from it. Um, although he was God, or in spite of being God, he wasn't selfish. He emptied himself. But uh, the word though is just a translation of a participle. Uh, and it's most simply translated, being God, he wasn't selfish. Do you see that? Paul isn't saying that Christ, in spite of being God, condescended to become a human and a slave. He's saying that precisely because Christ was God, he emptied himself. McLeod says, it is his very form to forego his rights. Jesus didn't insist on his rights didn't insist on his privileges. He poured himself out, which is perfectly in accord with the nature of God. We have these preconceptions of what God should be like, and for some reason, making himself a slave doesn't fit them, does it? We expect his glory to come and be blazing and brilliant, but his glory is humble. It's a paradox. It's the most glorious being in the universe is the most humble. In fact, he is the most glorious because he is the most humble. It was the glory of God, the Son, to empty himself, to descend into the lower parts of the earth. He didn't give up his glory. His glory wasn't simply, it was just simply unrecognizable to people like us with expectations and preconceptions like we have. The incarnation wasn't God managing his reputation in, a world, in the world, showing some face that didn't display his true character, his true essence. It was God being who he really is, dwelling among us as one of us. He wasn't camouflaged in his humility. His glory looks like humility. His glory is humility. And just so you know that it's not just some fluke reading of the language in this passage, just look briefly at John's gospel. You remember um, <clears throat> when he's uh, <clears throat> enjoying the Last Supper with his disciples, and it says in John 13 that uh, Satan had entered Judas to betray him. It says in verse 3 of John 13, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands... 
and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from the supper, he stripped down naked and washed the feet of his proud disciples. He condescended so far as to become a servant to his own creatures, creatures who rebelled against him, creatures who usurped his own authority and glory, who grasped for his power and privilege, who sought to supplant him as God of their own lives. He became their servant. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, he made himself their slave. Being in accordance with his divine nature, he humbled himself and emptied himself. And the last thing that he looks like to people like us is God. And finally, at the end of his life on earth, he was unrecognizable even to God. Because he condescended so far as to take on our sin to become sin. It says in verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So... uh, single greatest downward step in Christ's humiliation was the incarnation. It was becoming a human, being born into the created world as a creature, but it was all downhill from there. Every day from then on was kenosis, emptying himself, a downward trajectory through homelessness and poverty and pain rejection and shame and death. And it was death of the worst sort. It was a criminal's shameful death on the cross, which was an instrument of torture and execution. And it was all obedience for him. It would have been disobedient for him not to die on that cross. It doesn't get any lower than that. He became the world's doormat. He didn't even insist on the dignity of his humanity, let alone the dignity of his divinity. And just think, to suffer such emptying, such deprivation, such weakness, such humiliation as he did, and never, absolutely never to respond for one instant with sin he loved perfectly, he submitted to his heavenly Father perfectly and unswervingly. He humbled himself by obedience and it was perfect. And it was ultimate because it is his very nature as God in his glory to descend into humility. And his glory has descended forever since he is now and always will be a created human being. The incarnation continues. He is in heaven right now. And he will live forever as both fully God and fully man. Gordon Fee says this about this uh, gospel. In Christ Jesus, God has thus shown his true nature. This is what it means for Christ to be equal with God, to pour himself out for the sake of others, and to do so by taking the role of a slave. Hereby, he not only reveals the character of God, 
but from the perspective of the present context in Philippians, also reveals what it means for us to be created in God's image, to bear his likeness, and have his mindset. So the Philippians were concerned with their own image, with their own status, with getting what was coming to them, getting theirs. Right? They suffered from the same condition we all do. We want to be God. We grasp at greater power and stature and glory, but we are not God. And the one who is does not clutch to these things. The one who is God gave up his rights for love's sake. And God, his Father, highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. Whatever he might have tried to gain by grasping at equality with God was ultimately bestowed on him by his Father and is now shared with you as a gift of his grace. Why would you not freely give yourself to this Jesus Christ, this Lord, this God? Why resist a God who empties himself for love of people like you and me? Clearly, it should be your joy and honor to bend the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. And it is our dignity, it is actually our glory also, to humble ourselves, to have the same mind which is ours in Christ Jesus, to join Christ in the descending way of true glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became us poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender, sapphire-paved courts for stable floor. Thou who art God, beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man. Stooping so low, but sinners raising heavenward by thine eternal plan. Thou who art love, beyond all telling, Savior and King, we worship thee. Emmanuel, within us, dwelling, make us what thou wouldst have us be. Thou who art love, beyond all telling, Savior and King, we worship Thee. Amen.